Section 7 of Prince and Heretic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 7 Brussels. After the third day of tourney had completed the marriage festivities, the Prince of Orange, his bride, and their train, swelled now by Anna's attendance, set out for Brussels. Van der Linden was among the magnificent assembly who wished them Godspeed, and he found occasion to hand Hanelemung a charm in the shape of the figure seven cut in jade and set with little studs of gold. This would, he said, keep her from harm while she resided in Brussels, for seven was the lucky number of that city which was under the direct influence of the seven planets, and owned seven churches, seven gates, and seven senators. Honet thanked him with tears in her eyes and a sad smile on her lips as she turned to leave the land that had been a refuge, even if in exile, and set her face towards her own country which was so full of peril for her and contained unutterable memories. Already, from those in the prince's train, and from such Saxons as had been in Brussels, she had heard much of the state of affairs in the Low Countries. The Inquisition, which the late emperor had established in the Netherlands, had always been resisted, notably in Brabant, into two of the provinces it had never been introduced, with such effect that, though an avowed heretic, as was Honne's father, was certain to be apprehended, yet many who were not of the orthodox faith had managed to live quietly and unmolested. Now, however, it was being enforced with great severity by Philip's orders and Grenvelle's warm support, and the chief inquisitor, Peter Teitelman, was performing his office with the ruthlessness and cruelty of Torquemada himself. Everyone even suspected of heresy, anyone who did not bow low enough when the host passed— Anyone who read the Bible, or ventured to criticize the priests or preach any contrary doctrines, was at once seized by Teitelman, accused before his secret tribunal from which there was no appeal, tortured to force a confession, and finally put to death in the most horrid fashion the monks could devise. Already this monstrous tyranny was spreading over the Low Countries with a combined force and power impossible to resist, the religious force of the Pope, the secular force of the King behind it. Already Teitelman, Grenville, the Regent, the King, were rejoicing that they were tearing up by the roots the seed that Martin Luther had planted. Already some of the most splendid and prosperous towns in Europe were being devastated with executions, fines, confiscations, and the spectacle of tortured men, women, and children flung living into the flames with Merritt's hymns on their lips and the light of undiminished faith in their eyes. And this was only the beginning. There was no length to which the king was not prepared to go to re-establish the pure Catholic faith in his dominions. He was willing to depopulate cities, render barren the countryside, ruin the trade from which he drew so handsome a revenue, force into revolt the people who had been his father's faithful subjects, in brief, to utterly destroy and scatter one of the bravest, most prosperous, most intelligent, most thrifty nations of Europe, rather than see them tainted with the doctrines of Luther or Calvin. And to this resolve, Cardinal Grenville gave his enthusiastic support. Rene heard enough of the prelate to realize that he was nearly as dreaded and disliked as Teitelman himself, 
and that to him was ascribed the enforcing of the Inquisition and the creation of the hated new bishoprics by which the supremacy of the true faith was to be enforced and the organization of the Inquisition maintained. It was from the creation of these bishoprics and his own elevation to the See of Mechlin and then to the Cardinal's Hat that the growth of the breach between Anthony Perinod and his one-time patron, the Prince of Orange, might be traced, and René learnt that William, together with Lamoral Egmont, Prince of Gravern and Stethelder of Artois and Flanders, abetted by Philip de Montmorency, Count Horn, then at the Spanish court, had actually written a letter to Philip protesting against the increasing insolence and presumption of the cardinal, and that the king on receiving the message had warmly defended Grunbel, and so abused Count Horn, that that nobleman had hardly been able, from wrath and amazement, to leave the royal presence. These circumstances, which were common talk in the Netherlands, and rousing immense interest in speculation, caused René to regard her new master with added curiosity, with a growing respect. From the first moment she had seen him, she had felt his charm. Now she began to surmise his power. Along the journey she marked his patience, gentleness, and courtesy with Anna's unreasonable jealous affection, peevish tempers, and fits of hysteric gloom. Some of the other women laughed at so much softness, but Renner admired this gentleness in one whom she knew could be masterful and believed could be fierce, but it had the effect of rousing her former half-compassionate indifference towards Anna into active dislike. Never had the sickly, bad-tempered girl seemed so hateful to René as she did now when plaguing the husband she professed to adore, chattering over her coming triumphs in Brussels and boasting of her new rank and dignities. She seemed to see in the magnificent and tumultuous scene onto which she was about to enter only a stage on which to display her own enormous vanity, and her infinite pretty questions and speculations as to her position in relation to the regent and the ladies of her court fatigued René almost beyond endurance, for the waiting woman's mind was full of the great problems now agitating her native country, and of the coming struggle between prince and cardinal, of which Anna was so entirely in ignorance." When they reached the beautiful plains of Brabant, and the hill-built capital, Anna fell ill from the excess of her own spleen and passions, and it was on a litter that she was carried into her husband's gorgeous home on the heights of Brussels. This was an establishment that filled René with astonishment, and was indeed much more splendid than even the Saxon princess had ever expected. Situated in the most beautiful part of the ornate and rich city, and amid the residences of other great nobles, the Nassau Palace formed a fitting scene for the festivals, the hospitality, the pageants provided by one of the most wealthy and generous princes in Europe. The turreted and gabled mansion, crowned by a tower or belfry, and built in the most elaborate style of Gothic art, stood in fine gardens filled with statues, fountains, pleasant walks, exotic shrubs, summer-houses, and fish-ponds, all laid out at great expense and lavishly maintained. The rooms, halls, galleries, and cabinets were most handsomely and luxuriously furnished with all the famous rich splendor of the Netherlands. Tapestries, hangings, pictures by the most renowned artists, carpets, rugs, objects from the East and the Indies, all the ornate beauty that taste could desire and wealth execute, distinguished the dwelling of the Prince of Orange. 
the household with stewards, secretaries, clerks, musicians, chaplains, falconers, huntsmen, gardeners, cooks, valets, pages, servants, and now augmented by Anna's women amounted to over a thousand persons, and one of the most lavish and famous features of the establishment was the perpetual banquet kept in one of the halls, from which extravagant hospitality was indiscriminately extended to all corners at any hour of the day and night. The dishes, fruits, confectionery, and wines were constantly replenished, but never removed. In this household, beside which that of the elector was simple indeed, Renée felt herself utterly alien and overwhelmed, but during the first days of her residence there, while in attendance on Anna's nervous illness, she observed as closely as she was able him who had already so excited her curiosity, namely, the prince. She found he was good-tempered with all, loved by all, extravagant, reckless of his own interests, and very much the master. From her high window, round which the pigeons flew, she would wait for a glimpse of those who came to wait on him, Egmont, the stethelder of Artois and Flanders, as magnificent a lord as William himself, and of almost his proud and ancient descent, Count Horn, another great seigneur, but a somber and gloomy man, Bretterode, handsome, reckless, usually inflamed with wine, Count Horn's brother, the Seigneur de Montigny, and de Lamarck, the Seigneur de Lumet. And Renée soon perceived that these great nobles were all animated with one object, and that object hatred of Cardinal Grenville. How far the prince was heading these malcontents, she could not tell. She noticed that though he was so gay and appeared so open, he was not reckless in speech, and she divined that he was reserved and prudent in all serious matters. She believed, too, that his position was difficult, even perilous. If so, certainly his new wife contributed nothing to soothe either difficulties or perils. Indeed, her behavior would have hampered any man." In her vanity and arrogance, she was ungracious to his friends. She quarreled with Egmont's wife, who was the sister of the elector Palatine, on the question of precedence, and she chose to consider herself injured because the regent kept her waiting when she first went to pay her duty. But though she was behaving like a fretful child, she could not fail to be an important pawn in the great game that was beginning to be played in the Netherlands, and Clenet wondered who would try to rouse her to a sense of her position, for at present she was showing capricious favor to the cardinal's party by patronizing the wives of his creatures, Ershot and Barlamont. The warning or advice came most unexpectedly from Sabina of Bavaria, Countess of Egmont, Princess of Gravern the lady whose only previous acquaintance with Anna had been haughty disputes as to their order of precedency. But Egmont's wife was not the woman to endanger her husband's interests by feminine vanities. She came personally to offer her friendship to Anna and to instill the good counsel the Saxon princess so sorely needed. Anna, though tolerably flattered at the visit, received her rival with the haughtiness she deemed due to her station, retaining with her Rene and a little German girl who waited on her, and barely rising when the countess, she was generally known, as was her husband by her prouder title of Egmont, entered her presence. Rene had been told by her mistress that Sabina of Bavaria was an old woman, ill-favored, but the waiting woman found that the countess was as splendid as Anna was mean, as courtly as Anna was rude, as fascinating as Anna was unattractive. After the first few moments of commonplace compliments, it was plain that the Princess of Orange did not know how to behave. She sat in the window-seat eating nuts, which she held in the lap of her brilliant blue satin gown, and the shells of which she cast from her window— 
the countess of egmont leaning back in her dark chair her delicate tired face framed in a high rich ruff her soft hair threaded with pearls and all graceful composed and gracious surveyed the princess through half-closed long eyes and seeing that all subtlety would be wasted on anna came directly to the point your highness has already some knowledge of how matters stand in brussels she asked none at all replied anna flippantly naturally your highness has had little opportunity said the countess pleasantly i have been some while at the court and can enlighten you on some particulars it is best for ladies not to meddle in these matters remarked anna truly we women play a poor small part in these great affairs smiled the other lady none the less we may be of some use and help you have observed the great discontent there is against cardinal granville how all the seigneurs are against him especially your lord and mine the prince does not talk business with me said anna the countess bit her pretty lip i speak as a sister of a protestant to a protestant she continued your ladies are of the reformed faith she added glancing at honing and the other girl oh yes said the princess roused at last but i assure your grace that we shall give no trouble i have promised to live catholically and i will keep my word i did not mean to speak of that returned the countess gently only to say that his princely highness your husband has always been considered too lenient to those of the reformed faith has always count louis with him and continually others of his relations who were lutheran and this has been used as a handle against him by the cardinalists and will be even more so now that he has a protestant wife and what is the upshot of this speech asked anna hardly pretending to disguise her impatience egmont's wife replied with a serene grandeur that was so infinitely patient to explain i must weary your highness with some business cardinal grenville is already endeavouring to enforce the inquisition in the netherlands some hundreds have already suffered under his instigation now the late emperor and the queen mary the late regent did promise this should not be and to break those oaths is against the conscience of many good catholics and of most of the great lords save only Ayrshot, barlamont and megham who fawn on the cardinal but grenville wishes to enforce the edicts issued by the late emperor against heretics and this the seigneurs consider a fatal course so there is a powerful party against this priest and a letter has already been writ to the king against him i hear he is very upstart and of low birth remarked anna who was incapable of grasping the wide aspects of the question put before her that is no matter smiled sabina he is favored at madrid and he rules the netherlands not madame parma i heard the signor brederode speak of him the other day said anna with an affected laugh he made some fine jests on him he said he wore those foxtails in his cap as a memory of the old fox as he called grenville and frequented the masks in a cardinal's gown to do his eminence a spite the signor brederode is reckless returned the countess gravely and does us little good oh i think he's amusing said anna perversely he told me some fine stories of the cardinal and she laughed coarsely sabina knitows beware of laughing at the signor brederode's tales she said i tell you his pastimes are dangerous anna shrugged her shoulders as she replied 
What is your princely grace to say at the end of this? Egmont's wife blushed. She was not used to the rudeness she was so patiently enduring from this ill-bred girl. I wish your highness to be one of us, she said, to help us. To be ductile, circumspect, to submit to the regent, to give no confidences to Ershut's wife. She is my husband's kinswoman, interrupted Anna. She is of the cardinal's party, flashed the countess, and they are none of them to be trusted. I appeal to you she added with dignity, to stand by us who are standing by those of your faith. I tell you, King Philip is only waiting for the decision of the council at Trent to force all his subjects into conformity with the ancient faith, yea, even at the price of depopulating the Netherlands. I tell you, no liberty, no charter, no privilege will be safe, nay, not the joyous entry itself, and we must all turn into persecutors, scourgers in Grenville's hand, or be ruined." Anna was now a little frightened. She dimly wondered what her own position would be if all these fearful edicts against heretics were enforced. "'What can I do?' she asked foolishly. "'Bear yourself discreetly. Flatter the regent. Skew the cardinalists. Do not encourage, Signor Bretterode.' "'I am sure no one takes any notice of what I do,' returned Anna." In her heart she was sorry she was not an orthodox Catholic. The sufferings of fellow heretics did not move her in the least, but she was alarmed at the thought of being involved in any of their misfortunes. The actions of the daughter of the prince who forced the peace of Passau from the late Caesar must always be important. Anna was flattered at this. She was always inordinately proud of her famous father, while not sympathizing in the least with the principles or the actions that had made him glorious. "'I will do what I can in the matters you tell me of,' she said. "'But it was never my husband's wish that I should be troubled with grave business of any kind.' Sabina took this ungracious concession as the utmost she was likely to get. She rose, feeling that the whole interview had been rather useless. Anna rose, too, and as she stood, the bright, cruel light of the window over her, the other woman noted afresh how crooked she was, how sickly, how plain, and was sorry.' And over Anna's shoulder, she glanced into the gardens, which showed through the open casement, and saw the prince playing tennis in the sunlit court. His gay spirits, his splendid health, his pleasant handsomeness formed a bitter contrast with his wife. The countess, with the generosity of the woman who has everything, felt sorry indeed for this woman who had nothing but a position she could not hold, and a husband she could not please. The ladies parted, and Anna called for wine and sugar, mixed herself a sweet drink, and presently fell into a flushed sleep in the window seat. She was still asleep when the prince came up from his game. He looked at her in silence, rather sternly, rejected Hone's offer to wake her, and went away. The waiting woman kept her distasteful vigil during the rest of the long sunny afternoon. The little German girl crept away. The sounds of the palace came dimly through the shut doors. Without, the pigeons flew to and fro with a sharp flap of wings, and Hane sat motionless, with locked hands and compressed lips, her mind and soul in the struggle between Grenville, who stood for the tyranny of Philip and the power of Rome, and the great nobles who stood for the liberty of the Netherlands and the protection of the wretched heretics. End of Section 7